City Church podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Joel Littlefield is preaching through Daniel chapter 10, and the sermon title is, The Conflict is Great, but Jesus is Greater. We hope you are blessed by the message today. So turn with me in your old-fashioned Bible, or open up your app. Daniel chapter 10, I'm going to be reading the whole chapter. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth. Nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his eyes like the appearance of lightning, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief priests, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, and I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you not know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. 
There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. This is the word of God. That was my cue for Josh to turn my mic on. Yeah, he's, uh, he's doing a lot back there. We love Josh. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for a great morning so far and for the word of God that was just read for us. And I thank you for your word, how it is true, how it is exactly what we need at all times, at every point in our life, every struggle, every fear, every sin we face, every temptation. God, your word is a light and a lamp for us. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness. I pray today, God, that these words of yours would sink deep into our hearts, that we would give glory to Jesus, that we would hide your word in our heart, that we might not sin against you. God, that we would understand in a, in a greater way the, the conflict, the great conflict and the battle that we cannot often see with our human eyes but take very seriously the mission that you have called us to and who we are to depend on and who is greater than all that is in this world. Thank you, Jesus, for your love for us. Thank you for your blood shed for us. God, may we just understand and, and know in a deeper way who you are and what you've done for us. Give us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, it's wonderful. Did the kids even go anywhere? The church still looks full. What in the world? <laughs> this is, they're all hiding now. Uh, praise God. Praise God. All right. It's a blessing to be here. We are in our journey through the book of Daniel. We travel through books of the Bible here at New City Church. That is primarily what we do. And here we are in Daniel chapter 10. The title of the message is, The Conflict is Great, Jesus is Greater. The classic reason for going to the book of Daniel is spiritual warfare. We are, in this study, and just from reading, hopefully you've noticed, our eyes have been made aware, and we've peered into a realm that you, we just cannot see with our natural eyes, but Daniel was given a privilege and an opportunity to see something that is absolutely, well, we saw it, it floored him. It really messed with Daniel's hum, human nature, his being. It messed with him. He was floored, quite literally. And so I want to walk through this, and, and there will be some things that are familiar, but hopefully that we are challenged um, in our mission. So Dan, uh, chapter 10 of Daniel begins really what is a final section of this entire book. So 10, 11, and 12 really go together. 10 is kind of setting the stage for a very long list and lengthy, um, kind of just coming at you with specific prophecies in chapter 11, which... So grateful Isaac is going to preach next week on that. And uh, no, he's, 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 it'll be wonderful. But that's, that's setting the stage for chapter 11 and 12. These incredibly specific prophecies, so specific that chapter 11 is actually why many contend for the fact that Daniel was written in modern day after the prophecies actually were fulfilled because it is so specific. But chapter 10 is necessary and it sets the stage. And the context of Daniel is, is important to keep in mind throughout the entire study of, as we have been. This is not a book written to modern day people. 
This book was not in its context written to us. We can agree with that by now, right? It was not, Daniel didn't write it with our century in mind, but he wrote it for those centuries leading up to the coming of Jesus Christ. I think we've been convinced of that. That is the primary context. Now, are there secondary fulfillments still to come? Possibly, very likely. But the primary fulfillments being what has, has taken place in those centuries leading up to the first century, culminating in a lot of what we saw in 70 AD. Now, that is the context, basically. Um, it's not written to modern-day people about wars that are future to us, although that's what we like to see, right? We read the book of Daniel, and we start looking for how that's being fulfilled either now or what might come. Now, again, there may be future fulfillment, but primarily Daniel did not have those wars in mind. Most of Daniel 11, all of those wars, they have been fulfilled, right? So don't read Daniel 10, 11, and 12 looking for those wars to take place. It is very clear that it's already happened. Daniel was a Jewish prophet chosen by God to faithfully live in exile from the year 605 B.C. to around 536 B.C. Now, what did, he do? what did he do? He preached the gospel. We know he preached the gospel. We know Daniel by now. He was a witness for God to those pagan people. And he was called to be a comfort to the centuries of Jewish people who would await the coming of the Messiah. What he wrote, can you imagine reading that as a 5th, 4th, 3rd, 2nd century Jewish person waiting, longing, for Messiah to come. These would have been words of great comfort to them. Chapter 10, like I said, is the prelude to his final vision. It's as, it's as if God lifts a veil on the spiritual world so that Daniel and so that we today are able to see that the major conflicts of our world, what's going to happen in Daniel 11, that would be for his context. Those major conflicts of our world that they are connected to conflicts, conflicts in the heavens. That's what Daniel chapter 10 is, is showing for us today. That's the large scale, right? What happens in world cataclysmic events between empires, there's a, a realm that we cannot see, and there is a conflict in the heavens. That's what Daniel's being allowed to see. That's the larger scale. But of course, it would be reasonable to think that on a smaller scale then, the circumstances of our lives, our communities, what's happening in our local governments, political affairs, families, and even churches, even in our individual lives, are more than what we can simply see on the surface. Do you believe that? That the conflicts that we face, maybe that you faced this morning in your home, the conflict that you, that you face trying to come to a place where God's Word is taught, the conflicts you face in, face in your marriage, in your community, that we see and on a local scale, politically, the upheaval everywhere. What is really going on there? And it's, it's, we have to admit that it's far beyond what we can actually see on the surface. So this is the study, ultimately, of what? Spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. It's a massive topic and one that the Bible is not silent on. So believers, brothers and sisters, we don't need to be unaware. You don't need to be caught off guard, and you can be fully equipped. Praise God. You can be fully equipped by His Word for spiritual warfare. We can take 
Chapter 10 is an example, a massive example that the Bible is not silent on this issue. So what's happening at the time that Daniel sees the vision and is visited by the heavenly being? So we're going to give a little bit of a backstory again because this is incredible. What's going on in history is going to tell us some things as to why potentially Daniel is now being, his eyes are being opened and he's seeing spiritual battles. So remember from our last time together that the 70 years of captivity were drawing to a close. Those 70 years were prophesied by Jeremiah the prophet. And Daniel was a reader of God's word, and he was aware that he was at about 66 years into that captivity. So the time was coming to an end. And what did he do? He began to pray, and he began, excuse me, he began to seek the Lord. Cyrus was the king who would come into power and give the permission for the Jews to begin to return to their homeland and begin to build their home again and ultimately the temple again. Now, we see that decree take place in Ezra chapter 1. We referenced that. I don't know if you were able to go and read that yourself. If you haven't, make a mark, read Ezra, read the whole thing. Things in Daniel and what we're reading in history will start to come to life as you begin to read some of these paralleling historical books. Ezra, Nehemiah, even Esther is taking place somewhere in this vicinity. While this is going on, what is happening, or what was happening when Esther was recorded, it's all within the same pretty awesome stuff. And the Bible does start to come to life when you make these connections. So Cyrus, we know, made that decree. That happened in the first year of Cyrus. And here we are, the book says, chapter 10, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel. So in the first year, he called the Jews back into the homeland, gave permission for them, and here we are in the third year of that captivity, which means that progress should have been made by now on Jerusalem and the temple, wouldn't you think? He calls them back in. Come on, Jews, you can come back to your homeland. The time of captivity is over. Third year in, what's been done? But what do we know about the rebuilding process from what Scripture tells us? It did not go smoothly. Isn't that interesting? This is all happening while Daniel is praying in the third year of Cyrus, the building is not going smoothly. We read this in Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Feel free to turn there in the text. We'll also have it on the screen for you. Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. After the call was made for them to return, it says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the day of Esharadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Now check out verse 4 and 5. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That's all happening in this time frame. Isn't that interesting? What would that have done to Daniel? What would Daniel be thinking the third year into Cyrus, 
his reign, also having been in exile for 40 years, praying for the captivity to come to end, believing the promises of God, and then now he looks at the progress and it's not going well. There's actually a discouraged people, a fearful people, and we know now it would take actually years to complete the rebuild as well as the walls of that city. So definitely, definitely check out what is recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah to learn more about that. Do that on your own time. Read those books. It will be incredible to you. But this quite possibly is the kind of scenario that caused Daniel to go into what we're reading in chapter 10. What does it say? Third year of Cyrus. It was revealed to Daniel who was named Belshazzar, which is a repeat of chapter 1. This is the name that Nebuchadnezzar gave him. He said, no, you're not Daniel anymore. You're Belteshazzar. Why? That was a pagan name. And Daniel, it's almost like, it's like he's saying, guys, I'm still here. I didn't, Daniel's in his 80s, most likely. And he stayed. He didn't go back. He could have gone when Cyrus allowed the people to go. Isn't that interesting? Daniel stayed. He stayed there, I believe, to be a witness and to allow God, well, God accomplished through him what is happening here because he did stay. So he goes into fasting. Says, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. In verse 2, I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for a full three weeks. On the 24th day of the month, I was standing on the bank of the great river that is the Tigris. And then he goes on and we'll, we'll touch on that. But hear me on this, church. Satan hates all progress that advances the kingdom of Christ. And for the Jews to come back into their homeland and begin to rebuild the temple and the, in Jerusalem was a kingdom work. It was all about who? It was about Jesus it was about fulfilling all these other prophecies that we've been talking about and looking at, that Jesus was going to come in and he was going to crush those empires and the statue was going to come crumbling down in the days of the Roman Empire. It was all about Jesus, the stone which the builder rejected. It was about him. And so for the enemy to see a rebuild of Jerusalem and a coming together of God's people to worship the way God prescribed is a kingdom work, and Satan hates this, and this is spiritual warfare. And that's why Daniel is, what we're seeing is he's engaging in spiritual, spiritual warfare. And he begins to pray. He begins to fast. So think about that. Satan was not ignorant of the prophecies of Jeremiah. Satan was very understanding of what was going to take place. He's not dumb. He's not an idiot. He, is, he has the ability to know and knowledge, and he learns. So he would have been very much aware. We know how much he was aware even when he was tempting Jesus in the wilderness, even using the very Word of God himself. But he was not ignorant of the prophecies of Jeremiah. He knows the story and the plan. He had been watching Daniel and every new emperor attempting to thwart the plan of God, watching each of them, but none of them could thwart the plan of God. Praise God. None of them that stood against Daniel and the people of God, as much as Satan sought to interrupt and thwart those plans, he could not. Now the captives are being called home, and what does the enemy do? Through discouragement, according to Ezra, what we read, a parallel historical context, through discouragement of the people, 
he causes what to spread? Fear. Through discouragement, he causes fear to spread, and the rebuilding stops. You'd think that that would be easier to overcome, fear and discouragement. I mean, the enemy didn't even have to come in and wipe them out with an army. Just fear and discouragement on the people of God. Maybe you've been there. I would be 100% willing to bet, though I'm not a betting man, anyway, um, that you've been in that place where something just as simple as fear and discouragement stopped you from pursuing kingdom work where you knew what you should do. I need to be a disciple maker. I need to be in the Word. I need to be engaged with the kingdom work. I need to be sharing the gospel. Not a need as in, uh, like, that. you know, checking off, I need to do this. No, no, we need because it is God's best for us, and we need Christ. We need His plan. We need Him. And so there you are on the brink of those things, and through fear and discouragement, we can just be completely stopped. How often is this the case with the follower of Jesus Christ? Through fear and discouragement, the work of the kingdom in your life comes to a complete stop. So the scene is set for us. Daniel has been in prayer and fasting, mourning for his people, standing at the Tigris River is now where we have him physically standing, and a man appeared to him. Look at verse 5. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz, around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. Interesting side note that you should take note of in Revelation chapter 1 verses 12 to 17, we see such a starting, startling similar image that we cannot help but say there's some correlation here. As you read Revelation 1, 12 to 17, we see a similar description given to the risen and glorified Christ. Almost to the exact comparison. He's seen by the Apostle John in his vision. So this is great evidence, and many believe that this is great evidence that this person that Daniel is seeing is not necessarily just an angel, but is the pre-incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Godhead appearing to Daniel, which was not uncommon in the Old Testament. There's several other places that we could say were certainly a Christophany where the Son appeared. But throughout the Old Testament, we have many of those appearances, sometimes even being called the angel of the Lord. Who is the angel of the Lord? Very mysterious things. We can't really go in-depth into those things, but certainly you can study those. Many Many people believe that that angel of the Lord is that person, that second person of the triune God. Also, the commander of the Lord's army, right? We have so many times in Scripture where angels are named, like Gabriel and Michael. They're named several times. And then we have these other beings where the writer just, no name. Who is this person? Who is this person of great, great power? There is some speculation, of course, there, and there are some disagreements amongst commentators, none of which should divide us, but it just should cause us to hunger and thirst after what God is doing. Amen? Like, His Word is so awesome in so many layers and so many depths, and it is just absolutely awesome. But what's the point of this? The point is that God was in the habit of showing on the brink of great moments and great wars and and great moments for the Jewish people, he was in the habit of bringing comfort 
and affirming his promises and giving strength to his people. Do you guys remember when Joshua was about to go into Jericho and the commander of the Lord's army met him right there outside of Jericho? Like in moments like that, moments here where Daniel is, is mourning and he's fasting and he's before the Lord and here as he's standing on the Tigris River, this being stands before him. God brings strength and affirms his promises. Interestingly, the effect that this being had on Daniel seems to be negative at first. The men who were with him, the scripture tells us at the time, they didn't see the vision, but there was such a strong sense of spiritual battle, but that even those men who didn't see it, they fled the scene. What would that have been like? They can't even see it, but there's some sense so powerful that they're just like, we're out of here. And there's Daniel alone with this being. Verse 8 and 9 tells us that his strength left him and his radiant appearance changed. And the very sound of his words caused him to fall on his face. Then verse 10 and 12, And behold, a man touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved. There he is again being reminded of the love of God. Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Amazing stuff. In every instance... And this is why I don't believe this is necessarily an angel, and I've already mentioned this, but every instance when Gabriel is present, he's mentioned by name, which in this sense he is not, which is why I believe verse 10 introduces this. I don't believe verse 10 introduces a new character necessarily, although some people say, well, this is now a new guy. So you've got the first guy, and then you've got now another person on the scene. It doesn't necessarily have to be the case. You can take it however you want. If, if there's multiple people standing around ministering angels, there's the Son of God, could be that. We, we really don't know. Um, either way, the message is what's clear, right? Isn't that the most important part here? Not who's standing there necessarily, but God is doing something. And the message is very clear. What's the message? Again, he reminds him that he is a man greatly loved. I love that that's among the first thing, again, that's said to him. Daniel, you are loved. I've not left you here in this place to be alone. I'm with you. You are loved. Awesome. What that would have been like to hear those words from this creature Absolutely incredible. You are loved. But he says to him, stand up and listen to my words. He tells him to stand. And when he spoke the words to him, he stood up trembling. This is an important aspect of spiritual warfare. What you do, your posture, whether you stand or you sit, I'm not talking about physically, but whether you're in the battle or you're not. Daniel is being told, though he's full of fear and his friends have left him, this person, the Son of God, or a mighty angel, says, stand to your feet. It's time to get up. He's not told to stand up and fight demons. Please take note of that. He's not being told, stand up, attack. He's not being told, stand up and curse the sinners who are around you, though many Christians do that, to their fault. Spiritual warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, and we're seeing that here, are we not? He's not told to stand up and even do his best. 
Stand up, Daniel. You can do this. Come on, buddy. No, none of that. Daniel was made aware of his weakness and his utter need for the strength which God alone supplies. In this, Daniel is not told, no, you're really strong. No, no, Daniel was made aware of his weakness. And in that weakness, this being says, stand up, be encouraged. You need my strength and listen to my words. Church, you need to stand up in the midst of warfare and the strength that God supplies. We need to stand up. Some of the things we've been praying about already in this morning, evangelism, sharing the gospel, being the church, even walking in obedience and faith to what God is calling us to do in our individual lives and corporately as a church body, it requires us to stand. And doesn't this sound a lot like the Apostle Paul's words? I'm sure you're like, well, is he, when's he going to reference Ephesians 6, man? It's like, got to go there. Well, okay, I'll go there. Just one verse, though, so don't, don't get too excited. Ephesians 6.10. It's, it's startlingly the same. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Finally... To the church of Ephesus, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Because the strength of our might is very, very small. The strength of your might is minuscule when we realize where the battle really lies. Now, Daniel may have thought that he was strong, but once his eyes were open to the vision, I'm sure he felt pretty weak. What he's about to see and what if we were to see these things in our mind's eye, or even a vision that God showed us, we would be terrified. Absolutely terrified. Which is kind of crazy because isn't the media already kind of preparing the entire culture for this spiritual hero, godlike people? Everything we see on the big screen is absolutely incredible, is it not? The things that they cause us to see and to think about the powers that people can possess. But here we have where power truly lies and where things that are actually happening, this is true, the spiritual realm is real, there are demons, there are angels, and there is power. And it's a real thing. It's not a movie. Daniel didn't just see Avengers whatever. I, I'm not, yeah, anyway. I've seen almost all of them, but I, I don't know. Anyway. But our strength is very small when we realize where the battle lies. And that's the veil that's being pulled back for Daniel to some degree in this chapter. Let me read you a, a quote from Abraham Kuyper. Who's heard of him before? Three people. Yeah. And they're all pastors. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. He's a great guy. Um, I know him well. Just kidding. <laughs> if once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came to view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range that the fiercest battle fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. Not here, but up there. That is where the real conflict is engaged. Our earthly struggle drones in its backlash. That is the real battle. And how often do we just seek to engage here with flesh and blood and not engage in the spiritual battle. And the scripture does not leave us without answers on how to do that. So part of me wants to see what Abraham Kuyper just explained, like, oh yeah, I want to see it. But the other part of me says, no, thank you. I'll believe you, Lord. It's pretty fierce. I'll just read Daniel and I'm fine with that. Because if it is 
as it really is, and I believe it is. Was that profound or what? (laughs) Then we couldn't handle it. What's important, though, is that we do not become preoccupied with what we cannot see. And I think that's oftentimes what we think about in these sections, like Daniel and Revelation. We're like, well, I've never seen that. So we become preoccupied with what we cannot see, and we remain faithfully focused on what has and is revealed, been revealed to the church for the warfare that we are called to. So don't, re- don't become preoccupied with what you can't see, but be faithful to those things that we have been given where we have been told to focus and those things that have been revealed to us. And I, maybe that speaks to you, and maybe that's somewhere where you've been in a rut, where you think about the unseen world and it preoccupies your mind so that you go running after spiritual things to try to catch a vision of something instead of just being glued to the Word of God and having all of your instruction from God's Word, what has been revealed and how we are to engage in this battle. So Daniel 10, 12 shows us that Daniel's prayer is actually what triggered the movement that we're seeing in the heavens. Isn't that awesome? This messenger came because of Daniel's prayer. Look at verse 12 with me. He says, Then... He said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. That should minister to us in terms of what does prayer do, right? I've always, it's always been a pet peeve of mine for people to say prayer works. Don't ask me why. I mean, I'm not like, it's not a big deal, but like prayer works. Yes, it works, but God is the one who works, right? Right? Sometimes we pray really well. Sometimes people don't pray very well. So if it's prayer that works then how do we know if we're good enough at it, right? So it's really, it's God who works, and it's understanding what the doctrine of prayer is and actually praying according to His will. We need to understand that, but that prayer, in this instance, was doing something. And that's a comfort to us. So that when you pray as a child of God, it's not insignificant. When we look at verse 13, we begin to see a little bit about how the battle begins to be waged. Look at verse 13. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for the days yet to come. And somebody might say, well, see, that's for the last days. But that's not what Daniel said. He didn't say for our last days. Now, it may be, but that's not what the context says. Daniel is saying that there's something to happen in the latter days of that age, of those people. What he's been saying this entire time, the Messiah is coming. Daniel 11 is about events fulfilled previous to Jesus' coming, primarily. So we don't get all excited and say, well, see, that's, it's for our last days. The latter days are longer than I think what a lot of us really think. Much longer. So, I don't want to belabor this, but do you see what is happening here? Daniel prayed, just to kind of sum this up. Daniel prayed, an angel of the Lord was dispatched. That's pretty cool. I mean, that's pretty awesome. But the prince of Persia withstood him for 21 days and delayed the messenger from getting to Daniel. What in the world has the power to cause interruption of a mighty angel of God for 21 days. There's some battle, some fierce something going on. Then Michael, also called a prince, 
but who we know to be a chief angel, which is why in this context, when he says the prince of Persia, we can know that this is a dark angel, a demon. Michael is called the prince. He's an angel. He came to assist in fighting against the princes, plural, of Persia, so that the message about the latter days of Daniel's people could be delivered to Daniel and then recorded by Daniel. Somebody did not want this to happen. Or for Daniel to receive these comforting words and then write down this vision. That was, that's spiritual warfare. That's something that we cannot just see by opening our eyes. That's something we have to believe by faith and trust that this is something that is absolutely real. A couple things that this seems to be indicating to us. Take note of these things. Humble prayer to God in the battle of truth has greater effect than we might ever realize. What Daniel prayed humbly as he sought for the truth... And as he sought to be a light, what Daniel, what happened when he prayed was far beyond what he probably realized. Angels are being dispatched. They're going throughout the heavens and they're fighting and warring. That's incredible. Secondly, Daniel never prayed to angels. He prayed to God. Please take note of that. When you see something powerful, especially in our culture, we're drawn to that thing. And then we give way too much credence to that thing rather than God who is sovereign over all. So Daniel did not pray to angels. He didn't take from this and start saying, well, I need to start praying to angels that they go and do some work for me. And then the thirdly, territorial spirits over earthly kingdoms were at least a reality in Daniel's day. Territorial spirits. You guys ever heard of that? How many of you have heard of territorial spirits? You can raise your hand if you want to. Yeah, okay. It's just some like half hands and stuff. You're not willing to admit it. Yeah, it's kind of weird stuff. And there's some names out there. Um, Perry Stone and Joyce Meyer, they go overboard, right? A lot of people in the hyper-Pentecostal movement will go very overboard with demons in every corner. Everything that goes wrong, it was a demon. That's not what we're talking about. We're going to just try to be scriptural here. But this is at least a reality for Daniel's day. So what are we to make of this today? And what we are to make of this today is debated among Christians and just the fact that most of the room hasn't heard of it. So, is there a demon over every territory seeking to cause and spread as much chaos as possible for the people of God? And the reason I'm asking that is because there were kings and princes over Persia. And then later in the chapter, he says that the princes of Greece then will come on the scene. And it's following the exact order of the prophecies that the one that would take over Babylon would be Medo-Persia and then Greece and then the Roman Empire. These great empires apparently would have demons that were in some way influential over what was happening on earth. But I can't say definitely if that's something that is still a reality today. I just don't know. People, apart from demons, are actually quite capable of causing a lot of sin and damage without demons, wouldn't you say? We, we could look and say, well, well, the world is a mess. It's chaotic. Well, whose fault is that? Well, well, look at this country and look at that president and look at this world leader. They're, they're corrupt. Well, we wouldn't just blame that on a demon. We'd say, well, no, it's, it's sin, it's sin. It's a corrupt world that we live in, a world that needs Jesus Christ. But that does still give us the question to say, well, is there something going on that we cannot see? Are there battles in the heavens? And it very, very much likely could be. Many believe so. But the point of Daniel 10 was to prepare Daniel to understand what was truly at stake. 
As kingdoms rise and fall and the days moved closer to the coming of the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, as those years moved on, there would be war, but not just on earth, but there would be war in the heavens. There always has been, and it's always been centered around the promises of redemption. Think about all the times that a world leader called for the destruction or the killing of a newborn baby in world history. Why? To stop life, to stop the coming of the Messiah, to try to interrupt and thwart the plan of God who was to bring life and redemption to the world through the Son of God born into this world. Satan has always sought to disrupt that. But he's always failed. And this is why he hates human life. This is why so many in the world rage to even today against the unborn. Now, this is not somehow a, 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 li- a message about pro-life, but this is seriously something to consider. Why is there such a rage against unborn, unborn babies, to see them wiped from the face? Because it's life. Because Jesus is life. And this is why without any common sense... Those who love and follow and preach the Jesus of the Bible will be opposed, while those who follow Buddha, Allah, or Brahman are embraced. What is it about Jesus? Why is it that those who follow Christ are persecuted in that way? Why? Because the only God that Satan is interested in opposing is the one true God, Jesus Christ. It's the only one worth opposing. What does this say to the unbelieving world? If you're an unbeliever here today, take note of this. The sheer hatred for Jesus and the people of God should tell you something. Eyes open. There's a battle for your soul. The only God Satan is interested in opposing is Jesus Christ, who actually does have the power to save souls from the dominion of Satan and eventually cast Satan into outer darkness. And that's Jesus Christ. Verses 15 and 217, in that section, we see great agony and pain and further fatigue. Look at what it says in verse 15. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground, and I was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, and I said to him who stood before me, Oh, my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now, no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. This pain and this fatigue comes upon Daniel because of the heavenly conflict that he was allowed to see. He must have seen something absolutely incredible, right? But again, the Lord touched his lips. He stood before him mute, but the Lord gave him strength to speak. He's drawing his strength from the Lord. His question was basically this, what am I to do with this information? It has left me with no strength and no breath left in me. What am I to do? And this is where we will draw some application. For those of you who engage in warfare of Christian ministry, and I mean you're engaged in kingdom work, you know the fatigue that is often unexplainable. You know what I'm talking about. 
There are some things that can only be explained by experience because you have engaged in kingdom warfare in the proclamation of the gospel and you have experienced a fatigue that is unique only to that, to where you're sapped of your strength and you don't know why and the only thing you can do is cry out to Jesus who has strength to give you. So some of you in this room, you're thinking, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've been there. I've wept. I've been confused. I've been in that place, and it's been unexplainable. You've been down. You've been without words, even, like Daniel. In that place where the struggle is so hard, you don't know what to say, and you can't say anything. And you've felt the attack on the most important institutions in the entire world where Satan often attacks, and that is what? Marriage, the church, family, and the raising of children. And we see these important institutions where there's so much frustration and fear and discouragement for the mission of the church, the mission of the family, and the mission of the parent to raise children in the fear and the admission of the Lord. These things that are important to God that he's given us to take and to handle very seriously. Like those men who returned from exile and sought to rebuild the city, you have been fearful and discouraged and in moments stopped in your very tracks. And at that point, you can say, for sure, you have engaged in spiritual warfare. And this is why this next part is so important. Verse 18, the Lord touched him again and strengthened him in his fear. The Lord touched him again. From the word of God, Daniel received peace. Look at verse 18. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said to me, oh man, greatly loved. He says it again. Fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. We need strength that comes from the word of God. We need strength from the mouth of God himself, from his very lips. From the word of God, Daniel received peace, strength, and courage. And though the battle wasn't over and the prince of Persia would be replaced with another spirit prince over Greece at a later time, the heavenly being said, I will return and fight. Isn't that interesting? Look at verse 20. Then he said, do you, not, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. What comforting words. And the reality that Daniel is being allowed to see, but he says, I will return and fight the prince of Persia. He's saying, this is something that he will do. In church, God has fought for his people. God has fought for his church ever since Eve was deceived in the garden. God is the one who has always stepped in to fight for us, for his people, for those who follow him, for those who obey him, who trust him, who want to see his will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. God is the one who steps in. Be strong and courageous, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Are those familiar words? He said that to Joshua. Be strong. Be courageous. I'm with you. The conflict 
is great, but Jesus is absolutely greater. So be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now let's look at a little bit more of Ephesians 6. We're almost done here, church. Ephesians 6, 12 to 13, very familiar passage. You probably have memorized it. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. What does Paul tell the Ephesian church? Stand up. Isn't that interesting? Daniel, stand. Even though you're trembling, stand. I have strength for you here. Church, stand in the power of the Lord and in his might and be suited up in the armor of Christ. Even more incredible... And this is what would lead some to say that something has changed when Christ triumphed over sin and Satan at the cross. Maybe there aren't territorial demons anymore. The way they used to have almost free reign. But Christ did something at the cross. Look at what happens in Colossians 2, 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What did he do? He disarmed the rulers. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, what this at least means is that there is not an accusation that Satan has against any child of God, because he disarmed them. There is nothing that can be said to a sinner who rests in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Every accusation falls flat. Because why? Because we have the righteousness of Jesus imputed to us by faith. That is our gospel. That is the good news. We trust in Christ, in his work on the cross. We repent of our sin, and he gives us his righteousness. He has disarmed them, church. We have nothing to fear. There's still a battle that is waged. I believe that that is true. How that actually plays out in the heavenlies, I don't know. We will know one day, but we have his word. And I cannot think of a greater kingdom work than a church that multiplies and disciples and makes churches. Why, why is this important to bring up now? Because church, there's going to be spiritual warfare. If you choose to be engaged, hands-on, with a church, with a body of people that has a sole mission of multiplication to do the Great Commission, you can expect you are going to have opposition in your life. It will hurt at times. There will be times of great fear and agony, but we have been given everything that we need to, to fight this battle, and we have our hope in Jesus Christ. This kind of church is concerned about eternal life and the souls of those who have yet to believe upon Christ. So there's going to be warfare because there is, that is kingdom work. Every endeavor to this end will experience opposition. Every person, every family, every husband and wife who seeks to join with a church with this kind of mission should plan to suffer the effects of Satan's schemes and persecution. Plan on it. Does this scare you away from following Christ? Then you may not actually be a follower of Christ. You may not be a follower of Christ if you're only in it if it feels good and if you're successful every day. Because Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you need to deny yourself, pick up your what? Your cross of suffering. You need to be willing to suffer. For me, not me. That's just my hands moving. For Jesus, <laughs> for him, for Christ, for his mission. 
It's not always going to mean bodily suffering. We may not be drawn out to the stake or shot by the firing squad, but there will be suffering that comes from Satan's schemes, and we have Christ who is the victory. Amen, church? We do not suffer without the hope of ultimate victory. We suffer with the hope of a sure win because Jesus forgives sin. He forgives sin and he forgives sinners, gives eternal life through the blood of his cross and his disarmed demonic authorities. So, whatever the next five years holds for New City Church, may they exceed our imagination in this world of multiplication and kingdom work and the Great Commission. May this cause each of us to press into the battle of kingdom work and not disengage. Be engaged in kingdom work. Stand up. If you're weak today, if you have experienced the weakness and the fatigue of warfare, stand in the strength of his might. Trust in Christ. Cling to Jesus. Believe in the gospel. Trust what he's done for you on your behalf. If you choose not to engage because of a love for the world, please hear me. If you don't engage because you love the world and you love your comfort, you could lose your very soul. That is the only other option. We either engage in the warfare with Christ or we say, I don't want that. I want my own life. I want my own comfort. And we lose our soul and we lose the entire battle. So let's pray for a move of the Spirit of God in our midst that is undeniable and to which we all respond, yes, Lord, I will do whatever you ask me. I will go wherever you tell me to go. I will preach the gospel no matter what happens. Amen, church. We are equipped for spiritual warfare. Let's pray. I know I went long and it's hot. I'm so sorry, but I'm also not. So I love you guys. <laughs> Let's pray. We'll share communion. We will try to maybe move things a little bit quicker. Um, Eric will explain how things go with communion. But let's, let's pray and really seek the Lord and ask him to, to do a work in our midst. Father, thank you for this great word from your scriptures. Thank you, God, for making us aware again today and reminding us of the battle that we must be engaged in and that it is not a war against flesh and blood. And if we've been warring against people, against spouses, against children, against neighbors, if our primary battle is with flesh and blood, oh God, forgive us and let us repent and be engaged in kingdom work that is spiritual first. And it requires a people who pray like Daniel, who fast, who mourn over sin, who love the lost and have a desire to see kingdom work happen. God, make us that kind of people, that kind of church. Thank you that, Jesus, you are victorious. You have triumphed over all. You are the head of the church, and everything is under your feet. And that last enemy that will one day be put to death, and it is death itself, when we will be raised with you. Thank you, God, that we are in your hands, and you are with us, and we can draw strength from your word today. I pray that you would give us strength. Lift up these feeble, weak hands. Give energy by your Holy Spirit to your, ch your church to accomplish your mission in this world, in this community. God, save souls through the preaching of the gospel and through belief in what Jesus has done for sinners. Thank you. Thank you, God. And we say, yes, Lord, whatever you want. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.